0: It's Jared. So, as you can tell by the title, this is going to be part two of my conversation with the Associate Dean of Students at Cal State Dominguez Hills, Zach Ritter. If you haven't listened to part one yet, please listen to that as this is going to pick up directly where part one ended. With that said, enjoy the show.
1: The black and Jewish, and I I want to qualify it because there are black Jews, right? And they're they're brown Jews. And that's
0: a whole issue in itself. It's uh, a whole
1: thing. Sure. Um, But I guess we're talking about the Ashkenazi Jewish.
0: Yeah, that's what I was more hinting at. But yes, Jews of color have their own plight. Uh, I would say a more modern uh, awareness to that. But yes.
1: Which is also interesting just because like Jews of color have been in existence in in the human condition forever. But I think there's a new modern kind of magnifying glass that we're Mm -hmm. looking at then, which I I think is good. But is it still a white Ashkenazic lens or gaze? And, you know, there could be problematic stuff with that. So that's an interesting thing to talk about, too. But it was never perfect, man. It was never really that good. I think we glorified the golden age between Ashkenazi Jews and Black folks in America from 1927 to 1965, with the culmination of the Civil Rights Act with LBJ and Martin Luther King. I think you're right. A lot of that died with Martin Luther King in 1968. King was a king at getting white folks and Jewish folks and everybody to kind of appeal to their better angels, as Obama would say. But the Jewish community was scared of King at first. Rabbi Nussbaum in LA was one of the only ones in 1963 to invite Martin Luther King to speak at Temple Israel in Hollywood. Other rabbis were like, man, this guy's too radical. I mean, it's the same thing like with Black Lives Matter today. It's like, oh, these these folks are too radical. They're, They're hating on Israel, and they're trying to make sure that their sons don't get killed. This is way too radical for us. Anyway, the 20s and 30s and 40s, I mean, they were living in the same places. Jews were kind of not as wealthy, but they were white. And so you have a breaking off of Jews because they started realizing, man, we're white. We can get out of these neighborhoods you know, restrictive covenants would be lifted in the 60s. And so Jews could then leave those neighborhoods. And middle and upper class blacks could also leave those neighborhoods. And then it would leave the poor blacks there. And then we have slums and the government doesn't care about them. But you have Heschel marching with Martin Luther King, right? Selma in the 60s. And you have A. Philip Randolph threatening Franklin Roosevelt that we are going to march on Washington if you don't deliver for the black community. And FDR was scared And so he gave some more money to uh, veterans that were black and coming back from the war. And I think he let black folks get into the construction. He desegregated construction work during the forties and late thirties. It was never perfect. Even the golden age was not that golden. And then I think it really started coming to a head with Israel. And then you have folks like Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Torre saying, you know, F Martin Luther King. He was peaceful, but what happened to him? He got killed. I don't want to lay down and die. America doesn't care about us. I'm going to coin the term black power. We don't need to placate the white man. F that. That's my father's generation of blackness. We are going to take what's ours. And I'm not anti-Semite. I don't have anything against Jews. I just see white folks, right? They're just white. We got to do what we got to do for us. Martin Luther King was a genius, but he had one fallacious assumption that America has a conscience because they would see Black guys being killed on the TV screen every night and they would be, their Christian roots would want, compel them to do something. But the reality, he said, was America has no conscience. It has none. Mm. It has none. And so then, yeah, then you have Black power. Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965, right? So he was already gone pretty early mm. on. And people get crazy about Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam. Louis Farrakhan said some crazy SHIT about about Jews. And that's wrong, and he shouldn't have done that, right? And he said Hitler was a great guy because he was great for Germans. He wasn't good for the Jews, but he was good for Germans. But I think what Jews forget is he's not a Jewish leader. right? He's not trying to appeal Mm -hmm. to Jews. He's trying to do stuff for black folks and get black youth out of jail and get people fed and carry on the tradition of the Black Panthers, I think we forget that the Black Panthers, the Young Lords, the Brown Berets, all these groups that were revolutionary were all, you know, Bobby Seale, Huey Newton, were like, wow, that was great, that was revolutionary. What happened to them? What happened to them is that the COINTELPRO and the FBI killed a bunch of them and stopped Black power from happening. And so I think when Jewish people are like, man, why don't, why don't Black people just act like us, be more white, you know, buy some property, buy a black federation and teach their kids about black liberation and Jamaican roots and Haitian roots and Liberian roots and and Ghanaian roots? Why can't they just do what we do? And I think there's a huge white blind spot, which is they're not white and they don't have the same type of money that Ashkenazi Jews have. If you're white in this country, it's easier to ascend the ladder of capitalism. I think there was commonality and a feeling of, we got effed up in Germany, right? Because you have Rabbi Prince speaking right before Martin Luther King in the 1963 March on Washington. Rabbi Prince says, I was the rabbi of Berlin and I got chased out and almost killed by the Nazis. And now I'm in America and I have to stand up and use my voice because if I don't, silence is violence and I can't let my black and brown brothers and sisters die because I didn't want my Jewish brothers in Europe to die. And that's a powerful thing. And we don't we forget that Rabbi Prince spoke right before Martin Luther King did the I Have a Dream speech. Black Christian leaders were really smart to say, well, here's this Jewish group, they're white, and that the Christian folks are gonna to respond to them well because the Christians have always a strange heart on about Jews, right? And it was genius. And you know, you have Brooklyn and you have Bronx and you have Queens, you have these places where Jews and blacks are living together. And my dad grew up in a black and Japanese and Jewish neighborhood. But again, as restrictive covenants are lifted and people start making money, then you see the racial stratification and the dream of little black kids and little Jewish kids holding hands is hard because those little kids are in very, very far zip codes.
0: Mm. I mean, I completely agree on the first point that uh, the color line remains strong and something that is not as permeable as I think people want to believe it is. And then as you were saying it, yeah, it is a lot harder as some of the commonalities have faded and the differences has been emboldened in a way. So I do though kind of want to circle back to, I guess, everything that we've talked about so far doesn't have to be all that specific. I think one thing that I found at my time in racial education, whether that was primarily in high school or with you has been, I think, a lack of solutions and a lot of lack of programming to fix a lot of issues. And yeah. don't get me wrong. I think you need to spend a lion's share of time in racial education on the history, on the issues, because unless you fully comprehend that, trying to devise any sort of solution going forward is either going to be half-baked or incorrect in general. But as someone who has kind of dedicated your whole career to trying to close racial inequities, What are solutions you could think, both on the individual and societal level, to a lot of the problems you've just talked about?
1: It's a good question. Man, it's hard. Just initial thoughts, voting, running for office, giving money, educating folks, showing up at gay streets or Jewish Voice of Peace or Black Lives Matter, whatever your group is, not divesting from public schools not approaching this stuff from paternalistic lens that I'm this great white Jewish savior that's going to come change your neighborhood or give you money Mm. and do it, make you in my own image, right? I think that's dangerous.
0: Like kind of a white savior complex and like a blockbusting type uh, approach. Yeah, I agree. Do you ever encounter that in kind of a field where you're talking, I would say a lot about um, issues surrounding people of color as someone who's not a person of color? And how would you respond to that perhaps for some of the white allies out there who are looking to try to make a change in some way?
1: Don't do it if you want a lot of pats on your back. <laughs> Don't do it for your ego because your ego is going to be chomped up and spit out. I lost it. Look, I got fired for doing some not even radical stuff. I mean, it's basically Bernie stuff, right? I was just hiring some folks of color who had some good ideas and, and the upper white powers that be didn't like it. And a lot of black and brown folks have critiqued me and been like, well, F you. What the F do you know about any of this stuff? You're a privileged Mm -hmm. Jewish white guy that's trying to pretend like you know the plight of your grandparents like you were in the concentration camps. It makes you humble. You got to just be humble and just be like, well, you're right. And I'm not trying to front and fake like I am something I'm not. And I am the West L.A. guy you know, who wears clear glasses and looks like a hipster and, and, and <laughs> penguin multi pattern shirts and drives a Prius, right? Like, I am who I am, but also what better position for me to be in that. that I'm one generation away from genocide and that I care about this stuff. I'm not trying to speak for black and brown folks. I am trying to walk in the footsteps of what Malcolm X said, that white folks need to go into their neighborhood and talk to other white folks. If they are the biggest promulgators of racism, they need to talk to their brothers, sisters, kids, and everybody and teach them how to be less racist. And then maybe then they can come back to the rest of the Rainbow Coalition and play nice with society. Because let's be honest, it is white folks that are the biggest progenerators of class inequality, race inequality, gender inequality, inequity, I should say. So let's not fool ourselves. We have a tremendous role in going into our own communities and educating folks about the problems of the past, the present, and the future. I know it could be mentally masturbatory to keep saying all these black and brown rights and you're bad and you're guilty. And shame and guilt is good, actually, because it'll get a corporation and it'll get an individual to get to a certain point but shame and guilt will not get you to the promised land. Mm. Like shame and guilt will do some of it, but I say you have to have a hug sandwich. You gotta hug someone to bring them into the fold and be like, look, there's some interesting stuff here. Let's look at this history, man. Let's look at this sociology. Anthropology started out as a like super racist social Darwin stuff, Carl Pearson, all these people that made the chi-square and all these things that we use we're using these to prove that black and Jewish people were an inferior race. (laughs)
0: Sure. Yeah. That's, I mean, yeah. Race science. I mean, the bell curve is like the modern kind of iteration of it, but yeah,
1: I agree. And so this hug sandwiches, bring them in. And then you kind of, you got to slap them to kind of wake them up and be like, you know what? This is what you can do. You can give your money to this organization. You can vote differently. You can educate your neighbors. You can, Shake it up at the boardroom and tell them in a nice way, you could, at the boardroom, you have power and you can say, maybe they won't hear it if you call them all white supremacists, right? Maybe that's not the move. But maybe you need to say, actually what we're doing in this corporation is hurting these folks. Maybe we can do something different and give money, share power, change something. Let's not gentrify this neighborhood. And then you hug them again. You say, you know, okay, you're a white Jewish guy. I still love you, right? I'm not demonizing all white people. They're not the white devil, as Malcolm X in his early days would say. The hug sandwich, the middle part, the meat part is the shame and the guilt. But that's not the whole sandwich. You got to really love someone if you want them to change. You have to love them and say, I am spending time with you on this podcast because I love you and I want your viewers Mm. to change their ideas and their paradigms and start thinking that "Ah, maybe I am a white supremacist and that's okay, we're all white supremacists Mm. because we're born and raised in America, let's be honest, right? Once we say, yeah, we are white supremacists, okay, now what do I do, right? If you have cancer, you can't just say, oh man, I have cancer, well that sucks, I guess I'm gonna die. No, you go to a doctor and you try to work on it and you try to get chemo or make yourself better or do something and so you're asking me what are ways To combat racism, I think a better way to answer that question is what is a better way to combat this cancer of inequity, myth of meritocracy, sexism, patriarchy, capitalism, all this stuff that is killing us, literally and figuratively, to put a stop to it? And I think, in a weird way, the coronavirus is a huge pause for a lot of us that are not dying of it to say, whoa, the air is a lot cleaner whoa, the traffic is not here. But also, wow, the inequities are really serious. My students don't have laptops. I didn't know that. They can't get on the internet. Wow, that's not good. I just went to play at the park. The park has been turned into a homeless shelter. The basketball courts inside my park uh, is is a homeless shelter. The inequities are being revealed even deeper and greater Mm -hmm. with the coronavirus because it's exposing how you know, black people are dying at an insane rate in Chicago, in Milwaukee, in Michigan. And so it's just showing the cancer that's been the slow violence that Nixon was talking about since
0: 1971.
1: Yeah. Mass incarceration, we're even telling guys to go home. Get out of jail free, go home, we can't house you. You know, we only have about 320 million people in this country, but we incarcerate more people than China, right, than any other nation, right? It's exposing, all of our crap, as Tupac would say, like, I am not the guy that's going to change the world, but I may spark the brain that will. And you don't like what I'm talking about in my rap songs, but I'm just exposing all the dirt and doing the CNN live from the streets. And if you don't like it, please come to the streets and get some social workers and get some lawyers and we can change the society because we still can be that great society that, you know, we were promised you know, we're always waiting for a Mashiach or something to come down. We're here, we are our own Mashiach, like we can change it all. We can open our pocketbooks if we open our mind, if we open our hearts. It's really not that hard, but it's easy to say, well, that's just how it is, you know? Black folks live over there, brown folks live over there. Hope my kids don't marry them. I just wanna live in my bubble, whether it's a Jewish bubble, whether it's a white bubble, whether it's a Beverly Hills bubble, it's more comfortable that way and it's more scary the other way if we really try to embrace each other and love on each other love is much harder than hate hate is easy
0: zach thank you so much for coming on as always thank you for listening to this episode of contested i want to extend a big thank you to zach ritter for coming on to the show additionally we want your feedback on this episode As you probably realize and as I've said previously, this episode is very different from some other ones we've recorded in the past. So if you liked this a lot or hated it, please let us know on our website contestedpolitics.com on the contact page. And as always, thank you for helping us understand politics together.